Why don't you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3 this morning. Mark chapter 3. I brought up the seeker-sensitive movement within modern Christianity a few times here, and I want to mention it again because there's a lesson to be learned from it. That's also found in our text. Before 1970 or 1980, there was no such thing as a megachurch. They didn't exist. The landscape was largely the same, a bunch of smaller churches scattered across America. But many were growing discontent with all these old, cold, stuffy, empty churches. They weren't reaching people, so Christians wondered, well, why is that? How can we reach people? At the same time, the church was being invaded by postmodernism and psychology and marketing. This led to a novel solution to the church growth movement. Leaders got this idea of going out into the community and asking non-Christians what they want in church. What would make them come to church? The hope is that if you could just get them in the door, they would eventually become Christians. Churches did huge surveys and marketing studies. They learned from the business world how to draw a crowd, and they learned from the entertainment world how to keep a crowd. Changes were made to church, and and guess what? It worked. More people started to come to church. For the first time ever, You had dozens and dozens of churches with 1,000 members, 2,000, 10,000, 20,000. It was working. Not to be left behind, other churches wanted in on the action. What are they doing? How are they growing so much? How can we get in on that? And many churches were seduced by success. There arose a new formula for the church meeting, uh, something that had never been done in the previous 2,000 years of the church's history. Make the sermon shorter or eliminate it altogether. Make the content softer and funnier. Make the music louder and more flashy. Make everything entertaining. Add drama, add skits, add movies. Remove sin, remove hell, remove repentance. And people don't want to hear that. You've got to keep it light and entertaining. All of this worked. Churches were growing. However, they soon found themselves enslaved to this new formula. They created an expectation in people and the unchurched as to what church was all about. And the second they tried to go back to the old ways, people just left. So to maintain their new numbers, they had to maintain this new formula. And to set themselves apart, they had to raise the bar and go to even more extremes. That's how a church got to the point of having a bed-in. A bed-in. That actually happened. This is where in, I think, 2008 or nine or something, Pastor Ed Young and his wife spent 24 hours on the roof of the church in a bed together, live streaming it to the congregation. They weren't doing anything, but this was supposed to teach the need for intimacy in marriage among Christians. That's now a part of church. This, to them, it's an acceptable part of what we call church now. And you can expect more extremes. But there was an ironic twist in this movement in 2007. Willow Creek Church is one of the leading churches in this whole movement. And to give you an idea of what they're all about, on the door of Pastor Bill Heibel's office was a poster that says this, What is our business? Who is our customer? What does the customer consider value? That's in a church. This church did another survey. This entire movement is built off of surveys. This time they surveyed their own people. And they wanted to find out, well, where are their people at? And the results of the survey, Pastor Heibel said, were earth-shattering and groundbreaking and mind-blowing. 
The results showed that heavy involvement in church programs did not translate into spiritual growth and maturity. For 30 years, their entire philosophy was to make these fun, entertaining, flashy programs, and then they measured the spiritual growth of their people just by attendance and participation in these programs. But they finally realized there's no correlation between these programs and an actual meaningful spiritual growth. Hybels himself publicly confessed that they had made a mistake. They finally realized that spiritual growth doesn't happen by a bunch of church programs, but by the age-old ministries of the word and prayer. And ironically, those don't take a $50 million building to make happen. You can do those for free. You have to applaud them for admitting their mistake. But it doesn't inspire too much hope because they came to realize their mistake not by going back to the Word, but by doing another survey. Some other churches in the movement caught on to this as well. They decided to make a change. They brought on staff some teaching pastors, I guess as opposed to entertaining pastors. And what was the result? Attendance dropped. But this was the true test. Would they continue this new change, firm and confident in the fact that they were doing the right thing before God. This is what God wanted. Or would they buckle to the pressure, go back to their old ways to get the people back? And most of the churches just went back to business as usual, went back to the old ways. They had become enslaved to the new formula. There's a lot more we could say here about the church growth movement. One time I did an entire sermon on it. Let me just summarize, though, an important lesson to learn with a one-liner. There's a big difference between a crowd and a church. You get that? There's a big difference between a crowd and a church. Even inside of a church building, there's a big difference between a crowd and a church. Just because you can cram a bunch of people inside a church building doesn't mean you have a church. That doesn't mean they are true believers. If you were to rent out your building for a day to a popular concert, you'd pack that place out. But it wouldn't be a church. Why not? Well, they're just there for entertainment. They're not there to worship God. They're not believers. But is that any different from churches who try and pack unbelievers and non-worshippers into their building through entertainment? Well, what's the point of that? It's not a church. It has been said by many that there's only one real seeker in the church, and that's God. And he's seeking true worshipers. And so you identify a church not by numbers, whether it's 10 or 10,000. What you look for is people who are gathering to worship God in the way that he defines. He defines that worship as, as he sees fit. They're there for the right reasons. It's not to be entertained, but to be edified, to be exhorted, to be encouraged. They're there not to be served, but to serve, to stand with the saints, to submit to the word to sing songs of praise. Ultimately, they're there to worship God in spirit and truth. But do not be so naive as to confuse a crowd with a church, even inside of a church building. Jesus did not make this mistake. He was able to attract huge crowds. We know on one occasion he pulled 5,000 people by the Sea of Galilee. And on other occasions, like the passage we have today, some estimate his crowd nearing 10,000 people. He had it. He had what every leader wanted. He had this following. He was successful. 
He had all these people coming to him, following him. He had made it, right? I mean, these people, they were, they were following Jesus. They had to be true disciples, right? They went out to see him. Well, not so much. Jesus perfectly understood that just because he had a large crowd following him, that doesn't mean they were a church. Or since this is technically before the time of the church, just because he had a huge crowd following him, that doesn't mean they were true disciples or true believers. He was not seduced by this success in the world's eyes. In fact, Jesus knew most of them were false. They were going after him for the wrong reasons. And when he opened his mouth, he started to actually tell them who he was, what he's about, what salvation is about, what he really came to preach, the gospel of the kingdom. What happened to the crowd? They left. They go home. But Jesus never pulls back. He never recants. He never admits he made a mistake. He never changes his, his philosophy of ministry to try and woo the crowds back. He lets them go because he knows that they came for the wrong reasons to begin with. And they were never true disciples. We come now to Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. It's the beginning of a new section in Mark. This is a summary statement. We have a, a few verses. It's just a summary of what's going on. It cuts through a large swath of time. Remember that Mark, in particular, he's writing the abridged version of the ministry of Jesus. This is relatively a short story. It's the highlight reel of what happened in the life and ministry of Christ. Every now and then, though, he throws in some summary statements to wrap things up and to move things along. And that's what we have before us, a summary statement, bridging what came before, what's about to happen. But just because we encounter a summary, that doesn't mean the words are insignificant. What he says is still quite instructive and purposeful because in this summary itself, Mark is making a very important point. It's in fact one of, one of the grand purposes of his entire gospel. And it gets to the identity of Jesus. Just who is this Jesus? And the answer, even given this summary, Jesus is the divine Messiah. He is the divine Messiah. Through his words, through his works, time and time again, all signs point to the same thing, that he is the long-awaited one, the expected one that would come. And summaries like this help condense all those signs into one, providing a powerful picture of his identity. We last left off in chapter 3. With the Pharisees storming out, they leave the synagogue, they're infuriated by Christ, and they plot to kill the Lord of the Sabbath on the Sabbath. They have now resolved in their hearts to, to murder Jesus. Only they want to find a way to do it legally, so they're going to take their time. So we see Jesus at this point withdraw from the religious leaders, and he goes to the sea. But his ministry continues. Let's, let's pick up now, read together Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard all that he was doing and came to him, and he told his disciples that a boat should be made ready for him because of the crowd, 
so that they would not crowd him, for he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions were pressing around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. When when you read this, you may see just a, a seemingly simple summary statement, but it's not. In reality, we find here three significant signs that Jesus is the divine Messiah. Three significant signs that Jesus is the divine Messiah. And the first of these signs is his ministry to the Jews. First, his ministry to the Jews. Look again at verse 7 and notice notice his reach, notice his scope of ministry. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. And a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Last time we saw that Jesus was in a synagogue. We don't know where, maybe Capernaum. But right on the heels of his latest conflict with the Pharisees, he withdraws from the synagogue. He goes to the sea. This time the Sea of Galilee. Why does Jesus withdraw? Well, because it's not time for him to die. That time would come later. The Pharisees, they just stormed out and they're plotting to kill him. And Jesus knows this. In fact, Matthew chapter 12, verse 15 makes the explicit connection that Jesus withdrew because he was aware of their plot to kill him. So in prudence, he avoids, he leaves town to avoid conflict. We're going to see this in just a bit, this lesson, but look, we know that Jesus trusts God. And we know that he knows how things are going to unfold. He knows he's going to die on the cross. But at the same time, he models for us prudence. Even though he knows his time has not come, if people are plotting to kill you, it's probably a good idea to skip town. Jesus did not fear their scheming because he knew nothing could happen to him until the appointed time. But he did not want a premature conflict with the religious leaders. He still had a lot of work to do, disciples to make, so he avoids this conflict. He leaves. Now, it can get a little challenging to try and keep track of the, the chronology of the ministry of Jesus, the life of Jesus. That's because some of the Gospels, they're not chronological, like Matthew, for example. So just to fill you in on a little timeline here, what we have in, in this passage and passages around this here in Mark, they're taking place about the end of Christ's first full year of ministry. This is about the end of his first year. First year is gone. doesn't get a lot of attention. And by the end of his first year, he still hasn't officially called the 12 disciples. That's going to come very shortly. In fact, the next passage, he'll be calling the 12, making them officially the 12. They were there. They were following him, but they weren't officially the 12 yet. Also, by the end of his first year, his life had already been threatened several times. You may not have realized that. You may have thought, well, that didn't happen until the end of his ministry. But no, already, on a couple of occasions... They threatened to kill him. Back in John chapter 5, which was an earlier time, he was in Jerusalem for a feast. And the Jews, 
were upset with what he said, and they stormed out again, plotting to kill him because he made himself out to be God. The powerful verse, John chapter 5, verse 18, says this. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So already once they tried to kill him, they plotted to kill him. Then he leaves Jerusalem. Now he's in Galilee. It happens again. He teaches in the synagogue. They don't like what he says. They leave. They plot to kill him. So to avoid more conflict at this time, Jesus withdraws from the spotlight of the synagogue and he goes to the sea. But he's not alone. He's never alone. People follow him. Verse 7 says, first he was accompanied by his disciples. He had not officially called the twelve yet, but they were there. They were around. They were following him. Many people followed him, even beyond the twelve from time to time. Now at this point, do you remember of the twelve, which of those he had officially called to, to follow him? We know for sure Peter and Andrew, James and John, and Matthew were called. John chapter 1 tells us Nathaniel and Philip were called. So that's seven of the twelve. The other five, presumably, we don't really know, but presumably they were there because, like I said, in just a short time, Jesus is going to go from the sea to the mountain and he's going to call up to himself officially 12, and make them the 12, the apostles. That's next week. But in addition to his disciples, Jesus at this point was also followed by a crowd. This was a massive crowd. There's actually two crowds here. The first is just a great multitude of people from Galilee. Galilee, if you remember, was that northern region of Israel in the Roman times. Galilee was Christ's backyard. It's where he did most of his ministry. It's where he grew up. The feeding of the 5,000, Galilee. Walking on water, Galilee. The Sermon on the Mount, Galilee. His new home base was in Galilee. After the resurrection, where did he say he would meet his disciples? Galilee. In fact, all of his disciples came from Galilee, except one. And you can probably guess which one didn't come from Galilee. That'd be Judas Iscariot. Anyway, it's no wonder that Jesus attracted most of his followers from Galilee. But he's not just a local celebrity. He's not just a small town hero. He had an audience that reached far and wide across the entire land. Secondly, we also learned that people came to him from Judea. And that was the southern region in Israel at this time. It's Greek for Judah. Remember the tribe of Judah, the tribe in the south? Judea was the territory. That's where the religious Jews lived. That's where the temple was. That's where most of the religious leaders were located. If you were a pure-blooded Jew, that's where you wanted to be. You wanted to be in the, in the south, in Judea. Judea was also John the Baptist's territory. He did most of his ministry in the wilderness of Judea. Remember, John attracted huge crowds, but... But this verse actually tells us that already by this time, even after only his first year of ministry, Jesus had already eclipsed the ministry of John the Baptist. John was able to draw on people only from the south, from Judea. But here, Jesus already is drawing on people from the entire length and breadth of the land. Not just a local celebrity, but he's known across all of Israel. 
And this includes Jerusalem itself, which is mentioned next. That's where the temple was. Every year, at least, all of Israel would pilgrimage to Jerusalem for one of the feasts, the Day of Atonement. People in Jerusalem, though, they didn't have to go anywhere. They just can kick back, and they're already in Jerusalem. It's rare for them, however, to leave Jerusalem and go pilgrimage somewhere else. That's what we find happening here. They're drawn out of the city by Jesus. At this point, Jesus had already been to Jerusalem before. In fact, he had already cleansed the temple once. He made a scene. So some of these people most likely had encountered Jesus. They had seen him before. They wanted to go see more. It makes me wonder, though, how many of these same people would just a few years later be shouting, crucify him? I bet you some of them. The next territory represented is, it's unexpected, it's Adamia. This is a place far south. It's south of Judea. This is the one place that Jesus never went to that we know of in, in the Holy Land. The reason it's unexpected here is that these people had to travel upwards of 100 miles just to get to the Sea of Galilee to go see Jesus. And that's extreme. Can, can you picture that back then on foot, no map, no directions, no GPS, a week of travel at least, 100 miles. And even when you arrive at the Sea of Galilee, there's no telling where Jesus is actually going to be. You just have to wander around and ask people. Here it wasn't too hard to just follow everyone else, but otherwise it's pretty hard. Most of these people from Idumea had not seen or heard Jesus personally. They were going off of hearsay, off of rumors, off of people who had traveled back to them. But that just shows you the popularity of Jesus. He was able to draw on people this far away who hadn't even seen him yet. They just wanted to catch a glimpse to, to see what he was all about. People also came from beyond the Jordan, it says next. Most of the Jews lived west of the Jordan. Some, though, ventured east. That region is called the Transjordan, beyond the Jordan. Jesus went there for a little bit. And then finally, we have people from the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. These are two famous Phoenician cities on the Mediterranean coast. Jesus would eventually make his way there. And he actually said he found more faith in those cities than among those cities of the Jews. But putting this all together, what's the picture? The picture is that you have all these people coming together from the entire land to see Jesus by the lake. This is a, a summary verse. It's covering a, law, a larger period of time. And then the, the picture here is that this crowd is, is building. The verb tense shows that wave after wave of, of people are coming to see him. This crowd, each day, each hour, more people show up. And this crowd is just swelling. We know that at one point, like I mentioned, Jesus easily pulled 5,000 people at the Sea of Galilee. That's the crowd he fed. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? Here, we don't know for sure, but some estimate that this may have been his largest crowd ever, upwards of 10,000 people, at least at one point or another. But the point of this is to show that Jesus was popular. The religious leaders, they hated him, but the people loved him. People loved him. At this point, he was at his peak. They just they couldn't get enough of him. There's a twist in the story, though. We, we, know, we know how it goes. 
At this point, you might re- you might think, oh, Jesus, he's he's the hometown hero. He's the people's man. He's going to lead the common man in an uprising against the establishment. You might think that, but as the story goes on, we come to learn that, well, no, even the crowds turn their back on him. But there is some additional significance to these summary verses. Notice this. The geographical area of his followers, it matches that of Israel of old. The nation of Israel had long since been disrupted. People were exiled, they came back, but the land was not the same. It was carved up into little slices by Rome. Some Jews were back in the land, and they expected the Messiah to come and to come for them. The Messiah was supposed to be the king of what? The Jews. He was supposed to come for the house of Israel, the entire nation, the nation, keep in mind, that God defined, the borders that God defined, not not the way that Rome defined it, but as God defined it. And that's what Jesus came to minister to. He ministered to the entire land of Israel. See, if Jesus came and he just stayed in Nazareth, never left his entire life, that would be a problem because the Messiah was to come for all of Israel. If he came and he decided to move to Rome or move to Africa and he never came back, that would be a problem because his ministry was supposed to reach the entire house of Israel. But that is indeed what he did. Remember some of these statements that Jesus made, Matthew chapter 15, verse 24? He said to them, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was his primary ministry, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Later, when he sent out the twelve to preach, remember what he told them. He said this in Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. He told the twelve, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any of the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why does he say this? Because he's the Jewish Messiah, and he's coming to fulfill Jewish prophecy. And this is God's mission for him. He didn't come to go to Africa or Asia. He came for Israel. This doesn't mean the Gentiles were ignored. We know that. There's a huge Gentile flavor to his ministry. He came to be a light to the Gentiles to save them as well. But the plan was always to reach the nations through Israel. This is why the offer went to them first. And here in our text, the sign is clear. There's a clear sign here, and that is fulfillment. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who came for Israel, the king of the Jews, all of Israel, spread across the entire land as God defined it. His reach matched that of geographical Israel of old. He was the one they were to be looking for, the one coming for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Again, the twist, which we'll see later, is that his own people did not accept him. His own people rejected him. You can catch a glimpse of that here. In verse 8, we learn that the great crowds came to him, not because of who he was or what he was saying, but because of what he was doing. They came to him not because they recognized he was the Messiah, Because they wanted a miracle. They wanted to be healed. But even in this, we see another sign. This leads to the second sign 
in this passage that Jesus is the divine Messiah. A second sign here. First, his ministry to Israel. Secondly, his ministry to the sick. A sign that he was the Messiah. Secondly, his ministry to the sick. Look again at verse 9. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him, for he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. And now we see the effect that this massive crowd was having on Jesus. He's pictured as being pinned on both sides. He's got the waves of the sea on one side and the waves of the crowds on the other side. And he's in between. And this crowd was so large, so worked up, he was in danger of being crushed to death. In fact, in verse 9, that, that second word for crowd, it actually it's a different word. It carries the meaning of being crushed, of being crowded to death. And we, we have a very so-called civilized society. And we, we don't even think of, of the fact that someone can be trampled to death anymore. That, that doesn't even enter our mind. But it's real. If you're in a big crowd, that crowd could turn on you and you could die easily. In fact, a few years ago, I remember this, uh, a Walmart worker was trampled to death on Black Friday. Just run over by people. So crowds can be deadly. And for, for Jesus, this crowd was even more dangerous because it's not like they were trying to rush past him to get to something else. They were trying to get to him. And they were trying to lay hold of him to be healed. So this was a, a scene for him. They were after him. The danger of being crushed was real. He, he knew this. And so for this reason, he asked for a boat to be ready. You know, when the president travels... He speaks at certain venues. The presidential motorcade, they keep the engines running. They do that for a reason. If there's an emergency, they need to make a quick getaway. Those engines are running. They're ready to go. And this is like the ancient version of that. Jesus says, hey, get a boat ready and keep the engine on. Of course, it's a little less flashy, not very exciting. He's not going to make for a speedy getaway, a little rowboat. But nonetheless, back then, nobody could swim. You just go a few feet offshore. You're pretty much safe. Again, though, we learn from Jesus in this passage an, an indirect lesson on prudence. It's pretty interesting. And some people always fall into the trap of emphasizing the deity of Jesus to the neglect of his humanity. But he was a true man. And during the incarnation, this included taking precautions to avoid danger. You realize that? He took precautions to avoid danger. And why would he do this? Well, because it's, it's the wise thing to do. It's the safe and prudent thing to do. If cars existed back in his day, he would have worn a seatbelt. Why? Because it's just a, a safe, prudent thing to do. Jesus knew he was going to die on a cross. He's not going to die in a car. not going to die by a crowd. He knew that. But he still demonstrated and modeled for us prudence and responsibility. And he did this several times. For instance, one time Jesus was teaching in the synagogue and he riled up the crowd so much that they were so angry with him, they took him out of the synagogue, they led him up a hill and they were going to throw him off a cliff. Do you remember that? And what did he say? Did he say, oh, okay, go ahead, throw me off. The angels would just catch me anyway. 
No, he, he snuck away. He snuck away. Why would he do that? He knew, he, he knew that wasn't how he was going to die. The point is, we know nobody knows God's sovereignty better than Jesus. But at the same time, he also is the perfect model of man's responsibility in life and accountability before God. They're just doing the, the prudent, wise thing to do. Here in Mark 3, though, the crowd, they didn't want to kill him yet. First, they wanted to be healed by him. This crowd wasn't full of that many ordinary people. I would say a large number of this crowd were sick. These people were diseased. Some of them probably had cancer, some tumors, boils, some deformities, some with crushed or missing limbs, some deaf, some blind, some mute, some paralyzed, maybe even a few brave lepers. Jesus, though, he was known for healing people like this. That was his M.O. One time, he even healed a leper. Do you remember that? Back in Mark chapter 1, that was such a significant miracle, healing a leper. And do you remember how he healed that leper? Just by touching him. Just, just with a touch, his leprosy was entirely cleansed. Jesus didn't always do this, but when he wanted to, he just touched people and they were healed. And that news spread. People picked up on that. They came to believe that if Jesus just touched you, you'd be healed of anything. And so this crowd, they don't want to wait, though. They don't want to wait for Jesus to touch them. They're rushing to go touch him because they think that just with a touch, they will be healed. Overall, though, the picture here, it's sadly of a crowd more interested in meeting their own needs. They're more concerned with their bodies than their souls. They're more attracted to what Jesus does than what he says. They're more interested in being healed by him than being his followers. It seemed that many of these people viewed Jesus as just a like a talisman or a lucky charm. Buddhists today, for example, they have Buddhist statues and they believe that when you when you pass by and you rub the Buddhist statue's belly, it brings you fortune and, and prosperity and good luck. And these people were seeking Jesus for the same reason. This surely explains why some of them traveled such great distances. They want to be healed. And people still do that today. If you had a rare disease and there was a specialist in Chicago, you would go. You would fly out just for that reason. And you wouldn't be denied. People who travel a great distance for something will not be denied. Several times, remember this, Jesus healed people. He was healing the crowds, but then he stopped just abruptly stopped and left. And he left many people unhealed, just moved on. And this crowd, they weren't going to let that happen. He was not getting away. They would not be denied. They had traveled very far, and they're not going home until they touch him and get healed. So you can see the scene now. They're eager to rush upon him. Later, Jesus would rebuke the crowd because all they wanted was a sign or all they wanted was bread. Likewise, Jesus knew that all these people wanted what was healing. So he does not confuse this crowd with the church or with true believers, true disciples. He knows that's not the case. However, does it surprise you that Jesus still healed them? Because he did. He healed many people who had no true faith. 
Why, why would he do this? There's many answers. One of them was to display his divine power. We've seen that before. Another one was to show mercy. Jesus, Jesus never turned a cold heart to human suffering. He would always show mercy and alleviate suffering whenever he encountered it. But another big reason was to fulfill messianic prophecy. It was a sign. When he healed people, it was one of the signs that he was the Messiah. Several Old Testament passages look forward to that messianic age when when things would be different. Listen to this, Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. Looks forward to the time of the Messiah. And what would that time be like? It would be a time when the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Verse 6, then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. They expected the Messiah to right all wrongs. And we know that he came with a spiritual mission, and that was the greater mission, to redeem us spiritually before God. But he also came to restore us even physically in all ways. He came as the the ultimate, the cosmic Messiah, the one who would redeem and restore all of creation. He came to redeem both spiritually, even physically. That work will be finished when we have our resurrected bodies. He redeems us entirely. Do you remember when the disciples of John the Baptist, they came up to Jesus and they said, hey, are you, are you the one? Are you the long expected one? Are you the one we should be looking for? Do you remember how Jesus answered that question? He said this in Matthew chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead, the dead are raised and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's his answer. It's translation, yes, I am the Messiah and you can tell by what I do. And notice most of those works were healing. Although there's a lot more to the healing ministry of Jesus, we find one of its primary purposes was to be a sign, a sign that he was the one. The Messiah. He's, he is the one that they were expecting to come even more than they expected who would redeem them spiritually and physically. Not only is his power to heal clearly divine, but his use of this power is only consistent with the promised ministry of the Messiah. Jesus is indeed the long-awaited one who will redeem all things. So we learned of a couple signs, his ministry to Israel, to the Jews, his ministry to the sick, both pointing to the fact he, he's the one. Let's finish with a third sign now from our passage, sign number three, that he is the divine Messiah. His ministry to the possessed. His ministry to the possessed. Now let's read these last two verses, verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Here we have the third sign that Jesus is the divine Messiah in our text at least. This time it comes from an unexpected source. It's a little unconventional, this prophecy 
fulfilled, and it comes from unclean spirits or demons. Whenever they saw him, it says they would fall down before him and they would shout out, You are the Son of God. This happened repeatedly when Jesus was by the sea. There are hordes of sick people cramming around him, and apparently there were many demon-possessed people as well. Now, whether these people sought Jesus out or whether they came upon him unwillingly, we, we don't know. It doesn't say. But we do know that whenever they saw him, their power fled from them and they had no choice but to fall down and shout out. And why did they fall down? Well, because you could say they met their match and they knew it. They fall down in defeat, recognizing the supreme authority of Jesus. Demons, who are simply fallen angels, they're referred to in scripture as powers or authorities or rulers of the heavenly places. And they're led by Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air. Angels and demons, they are, they are far greater creatures than humans. They're better in just about every way, more intelligent, more powerful, more magnificent, but they're not greater than Jesus. Jesus comes to show his true dominion over all of creation, and that includes the angels, and he comes to redeem mankind from one of his mortal enemies, and that includes the fallen angels. When Jesus casts demons out of people, which is the implication here, He is showing his complete authority and power and dominance over these otherwise most powerful forces in creation. And so like Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 says, let all the angels of God worship him. Let all the angels of God worship him. However, that's not quite what these demons are doing here when they shout out, you are the son of God. It's not an act of true worship. They're not worshipers. But it is a true confession. Jesus is the Son of God. That's true. And in a way, it comes from a reliable source. Because demons, well, they know God. James 2.19, they know God. Not in a saving sense. There's no salvation for demons. But they know God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They know Him. And when they see Jesus in submission, they are forced to speak the truth. Jesus is the Son of God, the Holy One of God. This is none other other than a clear title of divinity. He is the God-man. To be the Son of God with God being his Father makes him to be equal with God, just like John 5.18 says. If only the people, however, had stopped to listen to his words, believe his works, heed the signs that he was the Son of God. But even here, even coming from the mouth of a demon, it is a sign, nonetheless, that he is the divine Messiah, the Son of God. However, this is a sign that Jesus didn't want. He didn't want this sign, at least coming from them. Verse 12 says, he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. It's not the first time he did this. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 21, a demon said to him, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. It's clearly a messianic title. And Jesus silenced him. He did not permit him to speak. Later in chapter 1, verse 34, it happened again. Jesus was casting out demons of many people, and he did not permit them to speak because they knew who he was. 
They knew his true identity. He said, no, don't speak. This confuses a lot of people. They think to themselves, well, wait a second. If Jesus is really the Messiah, and his whole mission is to tell people and get them to believe in him as the Messiah, then why on earth would he silence this information? This doesn't make sense. And so people get confused by it. It actually makes perfect sense. Consider a few reasons why Jesus silenced the demons and even other people. First, although their confession was true, they were children of the father of lies. They were living in complete rebellion against God and they were not allowed to say anything. Their words were unworthy. But even more than this, their testimony would have hurt his case instead of help. They, they were not lending him favors by confessing him as the Messiah. I mean, pretend you're a businessman and you're on trial for money laundering, but you're innocent. Your attorney, though, calls to the stand all these mob bosses and mafia members, and they all testify that you're a great guy. You're a stand-up guy. You're definitely clean. You're innocent. Would you be happy with that? Probably not. I mean, it's nice for them to say that, but look, you don't even want to be associated with these people. They're not helping you out here. And it's the same with Jesus. I mean, just, just think about this. This is actually rather significant. Later in this same chapter, not long from now, remember what happens? The scribes, they actually get to the point where they claim that Jesus is possessed by Satan. And that he casts out demons by the power of the ruler of the demons, by Satan. So if Jesus would accept the testimony of demons, do you think that would be helping his case? You see, he would just be giving them ammo to what they would already claim. Also, another reason Jesus always silenced them is because he is purposely trying to keep a wraps on his identity as Messiah before the crowds. You catch that? He is purposely trying to keep a wraps on his identity as the Messiah to the crowds. Again, people ask, well, why would he do that? Isn't that his mission? It's confusing to people, but, but again, think. You have to realize that the people, the crowds, they had this completely distorted idea of who the Messiah would be. They had the wrong picture of what the Messiah was going to do. And Jesus did not want to be associated with their misconceived notion of the Messiah. They were all expecting the Messiah to show up as a conquering king, as a great warrior wielding the sword who would conquer Rome and lead Israel to independence, to sovereignty, to rule the nations. They were looking for a purely political leader. Get this, this is actually pretty significant. And in a little bit, we're going to see the feeding of the 5,000. You all remember that, again, by the Sea of Galilee. But after that happened, we learn this in John, the crowd was so amazed that they actually, at that point, confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. Did you know that? Just John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, they confessed that he, they believed he was the prophet the long-expected messianic prophet, the one who would come, the one. They believed he was the one. So much so that John 6, 15 says, they tried to take him by force and make him king over them. They wanted to make him their king. And Jesus, what did he do? He snuck away. He withdrew from them. Why? 
Because they weren't looking for him as he was. They didn't realize that the Messiah first had to die. He first had to be the suffering servant. They didn't understand that at all. They were just looking for one who would give them what they wanted. They wanted bread. He's giving them free bread. This is great. They were just looking for what they could get out of it, what they had in mind. Jesus later went on to teach this. He came back to the crowd in John chapter 6. He went on to teach this crowd really who he was, what he's about, the mission of the Messiah, what, what he's all about, what the kingdom is all about. He taught the crowd. He gave them the hard truth. And what happened? They left. They, they walked away. They go from wanting to make him king to walking away. How can this be? And because he was not the Messiah they were looking for. He was not what they were about. Remember, a crowd is not a church. But now you know why Jesus often hid his true role from people, because he did not want to be associated with their wrong ideas. He first wanted to let his words and works speak about the true role of the Messiah, the suffering servant. He let his disciples know his inner crowd. They understood. And they stuck by his side. In fact, later in John chapter 6, Jesus preaches the hard truth. The crowds, they walk away. He turns to his 12, to his disciples. He said, hey, you guys want to go too? Are you guys going to leave? John chapter 6, verse 66 says, As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter confesses, he says, you are the Holy One of God. By the way, that's the exact same thing the demon confessed in Mark chapter 1. You are the Holy One of God. His disciples understood, at least at that point, in a way. Is this your confession? Looking back now, we understand the role of the Messiah. We get it. He will come as conquering king, but we see that he first had to be the suffering servant. We get that. Why? Because we're all God's enemies. Everyone has sinned. Everyone stands condemned before God. And so first, he had to redeem humanity. He had to reconcile us to God. And he did that by paying for our sins, by taking our debt and wiping it away having dealt with it on the cross and rising from the dead. Now he offers reconciliation and redemption to those who truly follow him. So we get that. We we look back. We understand the true role of the Messiah. We see what he had to do. And we also see the signs that he was the one. He was the true Holy One of God. He did what the Messiah was supposed to do. Here we see in particular, he ministered to Israel He healed the sick. He delivered the oppressed. Jesus came demonstrating God's authority and power, and he accomplished the mission of the suffering servant. He did it. He was the one. All that's left for him is to return, and he will come back, actually, as a conquering king to rescue all those who accept him, to deal out retribution to all those who have rejected him. But the question 
after we see this, we're left asking ourselves is yet again a familiar one. But it's one we all need to ask ourselves daily. Are you for him or against him? Do you accept or reject? Have you believed the report? Have you heeded the testimony? And do you see the signs? Your only hope in life and death is to turn from your sins, to look upon Jesus in faith as the divine Messiah. He is the one who unlocks the door to life, to true life, here and hereafter. And he's the only one. So follow him, but don't just be part of the crowd. Don't just be part of the crowd. Talk is cheap. People come and go. But as the rest of the world one by one, turns their back on Christ and leaves him and walks away from him. Don't be part of that crowd. Rather, be the one who who stays around, who sticks by his side, who follows him no matter what. You will be one who will never turn away. You will follow him till your death. Like Peter, may your heart's confession be, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, we confess now, that is our same confession, to whom shall we go? Who else should we follow? What else is worthy of our lives but Christ? He has the words of eternal life and he has given them to us, the gospel. We too have come to know and have believed that he is the Holy One of God. He's the one we weren't looking for. But he found us anyway. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, Lord, for showing us the Son, by blinding us with his glory and giving us the, the true purpose and meaning of our lives, to be redeemed, reconciled with you, and to serve you and to enjoy you now. We say it all the time, but we, we never will stop. We thank you for the Son, for the sacrifice given for us. Now we follow. I pray we all leave here even more resolute, in our discipleship. We are his true disciples. We aim to be, and we will follow. Christ still gives us many hard commands. He says many hard things, like deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow him. Nonetheless, Lord, we will do so. We will not turn astray, because we know that what is at the end of this road is so much better than anything that we could have ever hoped for. We have life, life eternal, life with you forever. And so now we just long and wait for Christ to come back. Back as our king, King of the Jews, King of the Gentiles, King of Kings. We long for his return when he will rescue us. May we live rightly before you now. We pray these things, Lord, in your name. Amen.